0: Welcome to the Epidemic Belfast podcast. I'm Ian Miller, a researcher on the project and lecturer at Ulster University in medical history. Epidemic Belfast is a public history and medical humanities learning resource from Ulster University. It aims to map changing experiences of infection and disease for individuals and communities in the unique urban environments of Belfast from the 19th century to the present. On today's episode, we will be covering the thimidamide. Uh, and the tragedy that occurred, uh, particularly in the late 50s and early 60s onwards, as well as the lasting consequences and impacts of those who survived the tragedy. We will be interviewing Michael Kinsella, who will be providing a backdrop to the my tragedy. Uh, also, Hannah Brown and Rebecca Brown, master's students at Ulster University, are here too. Uh, and we will be interviewing Jacqueline Fleming, um, a local survivor of the tragedy as well. So, so welcome everyone to, to today's episode. I'd like to start with Michael. Uh, Michael, could you explain, please, briefly, what is or was thalidomide?
1: Well, the thalidomide uh, tragedy uh, is uh, one of the worst medical scandals uh, in history. Uh, thalidomide uh, uh, is a drug uh, marketed as a tranquilizer or, or a sedative um, uh, initially uh, and promoted uh, uh, as a treatment for morning sickness. Uh, in pregnant uh, uh, women uh, in the 1950s uh, and 1960s. Uh, Thalidomide uh, was a drug developed by uh, a West German pharmaceutical company, Chemie Grunenthal, in 1956. And in 1959, the British Medical Journal described thalidomide uh, as being free from untoward side effects. So thalidomide was very much marketed uh, as a very uh, safe uh, drug. from April one thousand, nine hundred and fifty-eight to the latter half of one thousand, nine hundred and sixty-one, uh, Distillers, uh, a, 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 a UK company, United Kingdom company, uh, marketed thalidomide, uh, uh, and its um, its commercial name was Distavel. Uh, and in the United Kingdom, there are currently four hundred and forty-nine people uh, living with the consequences of thalidomide.
2: Um, Michael, can you please explain drug testing in relation to thalidomide?
1: Uh, Well, from uh, the Middle Ages, uh, certainly until the 1950s, the middle of the last century, uh, a myth endured that harmful substances uh, ingested uh, by uh, a pregnant person uh, could not penetrate the placenta. Uh, Discovery in the 1950s uh, uh, proved or indicated that uh, substances with a molecular weight lower than 1,000 could be absorbed by the placenta uh, and enter the fetal Blood Uh, Thalidomide uh, uh, has a molecular weight of 258 and while in uh, uh, utero 10,000 babies uh, globally uh, were uh, in fact uh, exposed. uh, In fact, uh, because there has been uh, a lot of secrecy uh, uh, around uh, the scandal. Um, Sporadic testing uh, of thalidomide uh, on humans uh, and animals was uh, undertaken. And Thalidomide was firstly tested uh, on mice with no adverse effects. Uh, then it was tested on mice, guinea pigs, rabbits, and rats for a thirty day period uh, with success uh, and It was thought uh, thalidomide uh, you know would decrease uh, the risk of of suicide um, and uh, it was uh, it was deemed uh, on the basis of these uh, uh, early trials to be um, really uh, very safe, if if not, in fact, uh, entirely uh, free from side effects. Human trials uh, were small, uh, with only 300 participants. Um, And Widerkund Lenz, uh, uh, um, a German doctor uh, who um, uh, initially uh, uh, raised concerns, along with William McBride, Australian obstetrician, uh, about the danger uh, of... um, uh, of prescribing thalidomide uh, to pregnant women, uh, you know, he condemned uh, these uh, uh, these trials in humans uh, as holding a little scientific uh, value. Crucially, from a human perspective, thalidomide was not tested on pregnant animals uh, in order to assess its impact on uh, fetal development. And in fact, um, one uh, uh you know one of the uh uh you know very early uh, uh, legacies of this scandal uh was that um uh you know was that uh, new, tr- new 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 tr- drugs sh- uh, should be tested uh on uh you know on pregnant on pregnant animals so that was a that was a a, a key uh, a key phase in the testing process that that didn't happen uh and contributed greatly uh to the tragedy which uh, then
2: Michael, when did thalidomide become a problem globally and in Northern Ireland?
1: Well, the use of thalidomide uh, by uh, pregnant women was first linked to congenital uh, abnormalities by an Australian uh, obstetrician, uh, uh, William McBride, uh, who was a a practicing uh, doctor, Uh, and um, you know, so he began to notice um, that uh, uh, the um, you know that some of his patients uh, you know were giving birth to. Uh, to babies with congenital abnormalities and indeed uh, that this was happening uh, amongst some of his colleagues uh, uh, also. So so the link was first made by William McBride and a German paediatrician, Witte Kunde Lenz, and um, you know they began to flag up their concerns in 1961. They made their observations independently of each other, so um, Lenz and McBride were, you know, were not in concert. Uh, you know, they, they, you know, they they made these observations uh, independently, uh, and you know they observed that thalidomide um, caused birth defects to the extremities of babies, um, caused um, uh, uh, issues with hearing and sight, uh, uh, as well as uh, genital deformities. Uh, Also, uh, babies uh, had uh, uh, internal uh, um, medical issues, uh, um, heart problems, um, problems uh, uh, in the lungs and and respiratory system, uh, to the kidneys uh, uh, and to their digestive systems. And thalidomide uh, is believed to have have resulted in the deaths of uh, uh, 2,000 children, perhaps, you know, perhaps more, um, and... Um, certainly 10,000 children at least uh, were born uh, with, um, with birth uh, defects. Um, those uh, who uh, were principally uh, subjected to uh, the side effects uh, of thalidomide uh, were um, babies being uh, born in uh, Europe, uh, Australia uh, and Canada. Uh, the United States um, uh, experienced um, a less severe uh, uh, impact uh, from thalidomide, um, and in actual fact, uh, uh, it's it's still not known uh, how many babies in, uh, were born in the United States um, uh, suffering from the, the effects of thalidomide exposure. Uh, um, about 20,000 uh, American women uh, were actually given thalidomide uh, uh, as part of very poorly controlled drug trials, uh, and so the um, you know so the evidence from uh, from the USA uh, uh, you know it's it's unclear actually just just ha- just how big a scandal there was, but certainly the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, only acknowledges 17. Uh, uh babies in uh, uh, in the USA being born with thalidomide, but I believe that there is um, uh, you know there is a um, there, there is a a, a a strong campaign in the states just now to 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 revisit uh, uh, to revisit. Um, the British medical journal in nineteen sixty two uh, sought to gather a sen- uh, um, a census of thalidomide mothers uh, to include information on the pregnant person's medical history the history of the first three months of pregnancy and family medical history. And moreover, the British Medical Journal uh, published findings for all uh, Birmingham births in the five years, 1957 Mm -hmm. to 61, showing a rise in deformities or stillbirths in children when thalidomide was on the market. The Belfast Telegraph reported in 1962 that doctors who prescribed Dysterval had to contact their patients. And the article also claimed that at that point, There were no reports of the thalidomide tragedy in Belfast. This was premature. Uh, There are 22 thalidomide uh, survivors, or survivors of thalidomide, is maybe a, uh, you know, maybe a a more sensitive uh, way of phrasing that um, uh, in Northern Ireland. The Belfast Telegraph reported in 1963 that four parents in Belfast uh, were pursuing. Uh, uh, legal action. The Thalidomide Society was created in 1962. Uh, Belfast also had a branch Uh, and in 1963 the Belfast branch went to Stormont to meet the Education Minister uh, Ivan Neal to discuss the suitability of educational facilities for those children. Uh, There was a lack of facilities uh, for uh, children uh, who had Thalidomide. Uh, And the minister promised to consult local education authority uh, to uh, to revisit um, uh, uh, and rectify those issues. In 1966, the Belfast Telegraph reported that there was a £200 fund for parents in Belfast Hospital uh, to cover the burden of travel costs uh, for parents of survivors to be able to visit their children. And in 1972, Distoval offered the parents of the 22 thalidomide survivors in Northern Ireland £11,850,000, uh, uh, which the parents chose to uh, accept. Children uh, from the south of Ireland uh, did not benefit from the settlement, as their case was against the manufacturing company itself uh, in uh, West Germany. Some of the families uh, in the north uh, settled outside of court uh, with Distoval. However, these settlements uh, were deemed to be uh, unsatisfactory. And the Belfast Telegraph uh, stated that some of the parents um, spent the settlement to buy appropriate housing f- uh, for their children uh, and uh, that the families uh, uh, clearly experienced a great trauma uh, and um, a feeling a feeling of uh, a numbness and bewilderment. Michael,
0: how did drug legislation change after the, the Minimai tragedy?
1: Well, in the United Kingdom, uh, mirroring the rest of Europe in the 1950s and 1960s, um, the uh, regulation uh, of drugs was, was fragmented uh, and, um, uh, and very loose. Um, that legislation uh, normally centred on controlling the quality and promotion uh, of drugs. Uh, which Nationally, there was no legal requirement for the independent testing of a marketed drug with respect to quality, safety and efficiency. Uh, On December the 2nd, 1961, across the United Kingdom, thalidomide was removed from sale uh, and the tragedy sparked an overhaul of the regulation, licensing, selling and marketing of drugs. Initially in 1964, a a voluntary scheme was established um, under the Committee on the Safety of Drugs, which consisted of 16 experts led by Derek Dunlop to work with the pharmaceutical industry. However, the committee was purely advisory, holding no legal powers. In 1968, the Medicines Act was enacted, coming into effect in 1971, Mm -hmm. uh, and it established a formal regulatory system with the Committee on the Safety of Drugs, uh, replaced by the Committee on the Safety of Medicine. Subsequently, the new committee was bestowed with the power uh, to change a product's usage uh, or remove it uh, from sale. a clear uh, a legacy from the Thalidomide scandal uh, is um, the far uh, uh, more rigorous uh, regulation uh, of the pharmaceutical industry. And in fact, uh, quite a number of small pharmaceutical companies went to the wall uh, in the, um, the, the aftermath of the tightening up of, uh, of legislation because, uh, you know, they weren't, they weren't able to, uh, to comply. Uh, with uh, with this much more stringent framework.
2: Um, how has thalidomide been used more recently?
1: Well, um, thalidomide uh, uh, has uh, made uh, uh, been making something of a, of a, a recovery uh, 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 as a, a drug with medical applications. Uh, it's been uh, used more recently in palliative care. Uh, for uh, people with with cancer and for HIV patients um, uh, in 2000. Uh, And it was proved to be effective in the treatment uh, uh, of HIV uh, for ulcers and Kaposi's sarcoma. Uh, And these studies have meant that thalidomide has been accessible uh, for clinical uh, trials. um, And uh, thalidomide remains widely available uh, in Brazil. Thank you, Michael. That
0: was really interesting, That. I'd like to move on and introduce our next guest, which is Jacqueline. Uh, maybe before we start to ask you questions, Jacqueline, if you if you could briefly introduce yourself.
3: Um hi, I'm Jacqueline Fleming. I um, was born in 1962. In the last the last of us were born by um, June. I was born in January. Um I have been married, divorced, and have three children grown up. And I'm now a granny.
2: Well, I ask you the first question, any happened off. Yes. Um, so what was your mother's and your wider family's opinion
3: on the Mennonite? The sad thing is that um, I never discussed it with my mother. And um, not long before she died, she had Alzheimer's. And uh, she told my sister she thought that I blamed her, um, which I did not. Um, but I think the mother's carried a lot of guilt. You know, it was a harrowing experience for them. Um, My father discussed it with me once, um, and he told me um, that he arrived at the hospital, he said who he was and what the baby was, uh, or their name, and the nurse greeted him with, oh, that's the armless baby. And he said the longest walk of his life was walking up those stairs to see me. He says, but you had little arms. Um, My grandmother brought me up and um, we talked. I would have talked to my grandmother about it, Um, you know, and my mum was young, you know, and it was quite common in Northern Ireland for your granny to bring you up, uh, which is what happened in my case because she had more patience and all the rest.
1: Uh, Jacqueline, uh, could you tell us um, a little bit uh, about the... Uh, the the physical disabilities and the the physical challenges that thalidomide uh, has presented you with in your life?
3: Um, My disabilities are in my upper limbs. Um, My legs are, if you want to call them normal. Um, I have the shortening arms. Um, With with it, um, the difficulties are finding clothes that you can get on and off. Um, You know, you look at it... We go out, we look at blouses. I look to see if it'll fall off my shoulder, if I can get the buttons done. Trousers, Marks and Spencer's. uh, I have seven pairs of the same trousers because I can get them on. And this year they changed them to hooks, which is a disaster because I can't do the hooks. But life is just, it's that physical thing where you just have to be thinking ahead of yourself at all times. Um, A big physical challenge was whenever I had my children because you felt that you had to be the best mother you could. You had to prove that you, know, you, were, fi- you were fit for this. I personally had a wonderful um, health visitor who was very encouraging in that. But I think whenever you see somebody bending down and putting their teeth into a baby's baby grow to lift them, um, it frightens anyone. Um, even my best and oldest friend um she said she was frightened the first time she saw me lifting my first daughter, but I lifted her and then I could get her on. But in those days, buttons, it was all a nightmare. You had pressed studs, you didn't have velcro, so you had to work your way around it, and we weren't in disposable nappies. Um but to deal with that sort of thing, because I have always been used to this disability, um, you worked ways around it. Um my my eldest girl um, was nearly at school before she realised she was the only child who wore reins. Um, and I wore reins on them because I could slip my hand down the back of the reins and lift her. Um, but once she realised all her children didn't wear reins, she wasn't wearing reins anymore. Um, but, um, you know, they were brought up, um, you know, they knew not to um, go into the cupboard whenever they were um told not to. My my eldest girl, she laughs because she said that I taught her how to open the bottle of bleach because I couldn't get it open. <laughs> um, you know, she said other people are hiding it and you were getting me to open it. Um so uh, that was life before.
2: Jacqueline, could you tell us have you experienced any discrimination whenever you were in school or in the workplace due to the consequences of the manamide? Um
3: school first. Um my grandparents came from a little village up in the Moors, and they moved to Belfast to put me into mainstream education because you've got to remember back in the 60s the world was very different and um, we were expected to go to special schools but um, I did not uh, go to a special school but you've also got to remember you didn't have classroom assistants so um, you trailed your bag behind you you maybe you're jumper wasn't quite straight on you but you you got through it um you you just had to get on with it and it makes you a stronger person for it um you know discrimination I mean I remember um being at a youth club and um the the uh, youth leader would only refer to me as the spastic and that was all he would refer to me. um second youth club was great and I had a complete ball in it you know and everybody else my friends all forgot that I was thalidomide and they treated me as if I was one of them uh, going to work um I remember as a teenager you know your first job and I went for an interview in a shoe shop and they made me climb ladders they made me untie and tie shoes and buckles and then they didn't give me the job at the end of it um, and, and that was quite an experience, you know. There was a humiliation with it. Um, but I then worked in a large store uh, in ladies' wear and then in men wear, men's wear. And um, I had, you know, I had it all worked so that I could get everything done and have a person through the till as quick as the person beside me. Because whenever you, because you're lesser affected, You feel that you should be as normal as possible. So in my head, I had to get everything as quick as the person beside me. But um, they put me into menswear. Um, Didn't ask. me. just got a phone call down onto the floor. One Saturday afternoon, you're moving to menswear. Well, I nearly had heart failure. Because all I could think of was men's little buttons and all that sort of thing. Because that was going to be a nightmare. So I had no choice. I was told I was going to menswear. So I did. So um, the first time I had to measure a man's neck, so I knew I couldn't reach his neck. So I set him down in the seat and I put the tape measure around. And um, having the short arms, obviously I had to get that bit closer. Well, my chest ended up in his face. He ended up so embarrassed. I ended up so embarrassed. He walked out of the fitting room one way and I walked out the other. You know, um, but it was just, you know, I got on with it. I knew how to do it the next time, but no consideration was ever given. You know, I was thrown in the deep end and it was get on with it.
0: Jacqueline, you mentioned briefly that um, you had a lack of support at school. So I wondered if you in later in life, did you ever receive counselling or or support from doctors or any other?
3: It's a simple answer to that and the majority of us didn't. Um, it was, you know, it was back in the 60s. It was a different world, uh, 70s. You know, you didn't get counselling. Uh, the thalidomide are improving that greatly, the, you know, especially over COVID and that. Um, but it, it caused you to have low self-esteem. It, um, to the point you spent your whole time being told you couldn't do things. And that got to you, you know, um, and you were always told nobody would want you and you were always told negative things. Um, I remember uh, being out one night and being asked for my phone number by a chap and the next day the girl that was with me turned around to me and she said, I don't know why he would be interested in you. You know, it was always negative. But you just get on with it, you know, and I'm a great believer in um your ha- your cup's half full and not half empty
1: Jacqueline could I ask you um what your experience uh, has been uh, uh like uh engaging with uh, medical professionals um uh, you know as a child uh you know and then um uh you know as you progress through uh, your adult life
3: um my first operation was before I was six months old so I obviously don't remember that one but um Aged nine, um, I had a lot of surgeries. Aged nine, they took my index finger and cut right round it and turned it. So it gave me a pincher. Um, My left hand wasn't, didn't move enough to do this, but it was six odd hours. And um, we had the most wonderful surgeons because we had the troubles. And then we had us as guinea pigs Um, and we, had more access to surgery here in Northern Ireland than anywhere else, in England. Um, but going back to my thumb, so I was nine-ish years old. And um, on the way into surgery, I was held down while they took blood out of my feet by four nurses. I have a trouble uh, giving blood, um, but they actually physically held me down. Um, and I was screaming so hard the surgeon came in to see what was wrong. Um, And then I had a great fear of needles for many years after that. Um, So we got over that. Um, They pulled ligaments and that, and then they went in and they broke the bone and pinned it and straightened the arm. I could have straightened it further, but they kept a bend in it so that I could, um, it would be more use because it would get to my mouth better than if they'd totally straightened it. So then as time went on, I wore those out, probably carrying the children and doing things I shouldn't have. But uh, they then had to cut my stomach, you know, to get the bones out of my hips and and put them in. So I've had to have both arms uh, repaired. Um, But one of the biggest problems is I have to give blood every six months because of thyroid. And um, I have one vein in the back of my hand and the amount of people that will not listen to you um you know because there's one freckle and you got to go in there if you don't go in there you'll not get the blood um I have a wonderful nurse nowadays down in my clinic who knows me but um I find that a lot of the medical profession know better than you you know they don't listen to the fact that you know you know that there's only the one vein because there's nothing and it's on the back of your hand and they they think because it looks better further down they'll go in there but I know that it only comes out of the one place. Um, that would get getting the medical profession to listen to you because we, over the years, because I have always had this and it's not new to me, I have developed ways of coping with things and doing things. You know, simply getting out of bed, I swing my leg around the bed to get myself out so that I don't put my back out. Um, you know, and just silly wee things, but others and feel that they know better than you and they don't listen to you. And, I do, you know, it's probably because you're a disabled person and how could you know better than
2: them? Uh, did you and your family receive any compensation from distillers or the German manufacturer?
3: Um, so, um, uh, was the German manufacturer and they did a statement of regret, not an apology. So then they're not liable. So the answer to that bit is no. Now, there was distillers who were the original distributors of it, who were then taken over by Guinness, who for a short time and then Diageo now takes it over. And Diageo um, has honoured what distillers originally um, agreed with us. Um, So, yes, uh, the parents did get a small amount of money to help. Uh, with us and with the emotional distress of having a child uh, with a deformity the other thing is that you've got to remember back in the 60s because we were still uh, very involved with the church a lot of people believed that if you had a deformed child um, it was because you had done something wrong and I know that the younger um, ones like my own children don't understand that now Um, but you've got to remember that, you know, the parents went through a lot, especially the mothers, and I think they have taken the the guilt to the grave with them. Um, Now, uh, we did get another bit of money from, uh, which was called a health grant, uh, from the government, um, and it was trialed, and then they gave it to us for 10 years. Um, It's to help with... The added costs, such as my toilet would cost two and a half thousand pounds to replace. It cost two and a half thousand pounds 28 years ago. Um, it's wonderful. Um, you know, and my dishwasher, it lifts up. Um, and I have other things that pulls in and out. And it's to cover expenses like that. And an electric wheelchair, and I'm not a user, and... Um, you know, it's life expectancy is about five years. Um, so the government has given this. So England has given it for life just recently, but Northern Ireland hasn't agreed to it for life. So we're waiting to hear what happens there. Um, uh, so th- the way it was all set up was the more severely um, affected you are, then obviously the more money you got and the less, which is the way it should be, in my opinion. Um on the Gothenthal the story and the German manufacturers, there's a book, um, it's called The Thalidomide Catastrophe. Um, Martin Johnson uh, wrote it. It's an interesting book and very worth a read. So, Jacqueline, can I ask, what
2: is your opinion on vaccines?
3: Um, well, I am known for saying that I was very wary of them and was very worried about it. Um, But you've got to remember that a vaccine is different from a drug, but it still needs tested and we still need to know the side effects about it. Um, And I I was very concerned. And one evening, um, there was a lovely lady who was a retired doctor and she explained to us that they cleared everything, you know, and that the vaccine was priority, that they cleared the boards and that was all they were working with. So what should normally have taken five years, they could condense. Um, yes, I have had both. Um, I still am concerned about it. But I think um, having had a son who um, got COVID, uh, got long COVID, um, it, it's worth getting the vaccination. You know, you've got to. He was dreadful and is still a year later, still left weak um the whole situation then um I worry if if I took it I would end up at hospital if they have to put a, a line in where exactly do they put it you know there's one vein they can access in my case and um whenever you go into hospital you know they don't always listen to you so they're all full of get, good intentions please don't get me wrong but it's just that you know you I know that I can't turn left because I, you know, turn certain ways because I knock my shoulder out where, you know, I had an operation um, not relating to thalidomide. And I came out and my two shoulders were out of place by the time the surgery was over. It had nothing to do with my shoulders, but just whatever way they had moved me when I was unconscious. So I worried. And whenever my son had covid um, I couldn't have the lady who helps me in the house in, you know, PA, care, whatever you want to call her. She couldn't come in. So I was left. Uh, Connor couldn't move. Um, He was dreadful. Um, And in the middle of it, I had no kitchen because the week that lockdown happened, I was to get a kitchen. So I was left with a sink, a dishwasher and a son with COVID. And as soon as I could get the vaccine, I did get it. Uh,
0: Jacqueline? Thank you so much. That that was a fascinating, very personal um, uh, account. The ongoing impacts, I think, of the thalidomide um, tragedy that, that happened quite some while ago now, but obviously in your case, the, we can still see um, problems. And thank you also, Michael, for sharing an overview, overview of um, the thalidomide tragedy and Hannah and Rebecca. Thank you for listening to this episode of Epidemic Belfast. For more information, and to read articles related to today's episode, as well as other ones in the series, you can visit our website www.epidemic-belfast.com.